Hi, everybody. This is Peter Diamandis, and welcome to your next episode of Exponential Wisdom. I'm here with my dear friend, partner, coach, Dan Sullivan. And today, I want to talk about something that you might not connect with the idea of exponential technology. And it's the term wisdom. It's the idea of wisdom. And Dan, I have a theory on how AI is going to become much wiser than we possibly think. I'd love to share it with you. Actually, it was the experience of being on that remarkable jet plane that you introduced us to. The, the Verijet, yeah. Well, the Verijet. Is the name of the airplane Verijet or is that the airline? That's the air service. It's not really an airline. It's an air service. Yeah, the uh, airplane is called a Vision Jet, and it's created by Cirrus. I just got one. I'm super excited by it. C-I-R-R-U-S, right? C-I-R-R-U-S. Yeah, C-I-R-R-U-S. And it's the Cirrus Jet or the Vision Jet. And the service that a friend of mine, Richard Kane, runs is called Verijet. And it's like an Uber service, and it uses these super high-tech, very safe, very environmentally safe and fast private jets, these Vision Jets. But getting back to this idea of AI delivering wisdom, can I pitch you my thoughts? Yep, 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 yep. So, you know, we always think about wisdom as something that people get as they get older and have experience. We think about the wisdom of the ages. We think about the wisdom of our parents and grandparents. And it hit me one day that what we really are thinking about when we use the term wisdom, is someone who's had a lot of experiences and someone who, because of their past experiences, is unlikely to make the same mistakes and therefore has the ability to see over the horizon. And it hit me that, in fact, artificial intelligence, AI, neural nets, machine learning, whatever version of it you want, has a very unique capability to simulate dozens, hundreds, thousands, millions of scenarios mm -hmm. over and over and over again. And as a result of doing these rapid simulations, and it says this approach ends in disaster here, this approach ends in disaster here, this approach might be better, that that simulation can actually result in wisdom. And anyway, that's my thinking. What do you think about that? Yeah, first of all, I'm very attracted to the notion and that wisdom is really based on massive quantities of small testing that have all been put together. You know, that there's a testing process that goes on. Does this work? Yeah, yeah, but you got to adjust a little bit. And I just think of air traffic control. Mm -hmm. I was looking at a statistic that in the 1970s, 10 air crashes, commercial air crashes a year was not unusual in the United States. And now we go years, sometimes three or four years, and there's no crash at all. And it's just because the software that is controlled and it's always improvable, but it's gotten to the point now where it eliminates 99% of what caused trouble before. And I think that's really what wisdom is that, you know, at least in things that are known, you know, if we know things like this, that we know how to do it. So is that kind of connecting what you're talking about is that we can have automatic safeguards that are great around our lives so that we don't do dangerous things or foolish things when we already know how this has been tested out in large number of cases before us. I think that's kind of wisdom. It's a form of yeah, wisdom. 
I mean, it's interesting, right? You use the FAA and air traffic control as an example. And I'm a pilot, been flying for 30 plus years. And I learned that the federal aviation regulations, called the FARs in the United States, the saying is that they're written in blood, meaning that every time there would be an accident, they would go back and find out what caused the accident and then what kind of a regulation can you put in place to prevent that accident from occurring again. And over the course of, you know, the Wright brothers flew in 1903, Lindbergh flew in 1927, real air travel started in the 30s. So over the course of the last 80 years, we've had enough experience, real life experience, that we've learned what is safe and what isn't. And that's sort of like the wisdom of 80 years of experience. Mm -hmm. And what I'm talking about is rather than actually having to have all of those accidents and deaths, what if we're able to use AI to create a real enough universe that runs countless simulations and says, oh, look, here's the situation under which this disaster happens or this disaster happens. And those simulations are giving us that equivalency of wisdom. Mm -hmm. And that's what I find fascinating, that massive computation, again, computation is growing exponentially, as is the amount of data on the planet, and it's becoming lower and lower cost. You can be a business and you can start to simulate. Now, it's not there yet, but it's coming soon and figure out, okay, these small changes here, here, and here mm-hmm. really have a big impact in the later years. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, just as a reference throughout the years when I'm driving, I don't drive myself out of choice. So I'm driven by limousine drivers or my lifetime partner. It's not that Babs loves to drive. She doesn't like being in a car where I'm driving. So basically, uh, (laughs) she's my driver. But I said, you know, every traffic light is a memorial. You know, I mean, when you think about it and you're out driving and you come up to a four-way stop with a traffic light, I said, you know, this traffic light is actually a memorial to a death. A death happened here Mm. or a very serious accident of or many of them, usually many of them before people do that. But we now know when we're putting in new communities and, you know, putting in new street systems, they kind of know from the past where you have to have the traffic lights without having to have the negative experience to prove where you need the traffic lights. And that's a form of wisdom. Yep. Yeah. It is. Here's a question for you, Peter. Name one area in your entrepreneurial life, because that started about six, (laughs) your entrepreneurial life where you did have the benefit of wisdom, you know, that had really been collected and it really saved you a lot of time and you made jumps ahead. And one area where you didn't have the benefit of wisdom that you wish afterwards that you had had the benefit of. Oh, yeah, there's no question. I mean, there are two areas come immediately to mind, uh, hiring and firing that I've learned that, you know, hire slow, fire fast, and what to do when there's a problem in the organization. That came with experience, and it came at a very costly experience. And that came through time, through me going through it and experiencing it. And the other area that has been impacted by experiences is fundraising, raising capital for my companies, and then the types of risks I take and how I use that capital, all of that has come as with entrepreneurial experience. Yeah, we all benefit too, because we belong to 
I have a quarterly book club that has met. We're in our 20th year now. We've met every quarter for 20 years. A book has suggested and everybody reads the book. And then articles are sent in, you know, links, the files from the internet, and we print them off and we create a book that usually has about 30 articles and all the members contribute. But the thing that I find very interesting about the whole process is how much smarter all the members of the group have gotten about what other members of the group really, really like. But one of the things we were talking about was that almost every industry, and it's peculiar to the United States, by the way, this is a statistic, is conferences. Okay, so if you go to Google and you conferences, and these are annual formal conferences, and this doesn't take into effect trade shows, and it doesn't take in you know, the new virtual conferences that are happening, it doesn't take, it's just, you know, where there's formal places and people meet and everything like that. It's 17,500 in the United States every year. Wow. The number two country is the UK with 2,000. And then you get down to Europe and some of the countries, 50, you know, and everything else, that it's people who are essentially competitors sharing shortcuts and knowledge. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And what you're doing is that somebody else has 10 years of experience, but they've broken it down to five rules, and you can learn their five rules. Yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. wisdom is shortcutting. It's a form of shortcutting. A good example is the way things were handled after the First World War and the Second World War. First World War, they had the Treaty at Versailles, where they just punished the hell out of Germany. And all it does make them mad and want to do it again where in the second war, they said, okay, let's rebuild the country, let's give them loans, let's rebuild them, but we gotta retrain them how they think about things so that they play well with others and don't invade again. So I think that there's big horrific experiences that we have that we get the lesson, but what you're saying, which I find very appealing, that I don't mind making a mistake once, but I really bitterly resent making a mistake twice. Yeah, and I re- the same mistake. and I resent making a mistake that could have been preventable in the first place. in the first place, right? And so, for example, interestingly enough, when SpaceX launched their first Dragon mission, going to the space station, you know, they had the Falcon Nine and they built this human-rated capsule. It's the way America gets into orbit right now. When the space shuttle was retired, on the first mission, the Dragon worked extraordinarily well. It made it with the space station without any issue. And one of the things you realized was the reason the mission worked perfectly, and it was, you know, 99% automated, was because they had run countless simulations beforehand. They had looked at every possible error, and they had run it to the point where they optimized the software. In other words, you know, if you think about software as the way a computer thinks, if you run simulations to optimize it, mm-hmm. for us as humans, we run simulations by doing it in real life with its consequences. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, safety can come from having run the simulations that prevent you from making a mistake in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. And the trip that we were just privileged to be on with you in Boston and New York at the beginning of August, you know, it came through again and again with each of the speakers, 
By the way, I found as a group of technologists, because they are using technologists, they were the most humane group of technologists that I've ever encountered on a continual basis. For those wondering which trip Dan's referring to, I run a abundance platinum longevity trip every year, and we have about 30 participants in August and 30 participants in September, and we alternate between the West Coast and the East Coast, and we basically meet with the top scientists and entrepreneurs and labs on the cutting edge of extending your life 10, 20, 30 healthy years. And yeah, the faculty that we brought together on this were just super kind people. Why do you think that's the case? Because I think that they've all had personal experience with the suffering that hasn't been solved yet. Hmm. In other words, they have firsthand experience and sometimes it's even personal. I mean, they've actually, you know, it's friends, relatives, and everything that they've actually dealt with why it's such a bad thing that it's not solved and why it's such a painful thing. Yeah. But the thing that really got me was that, you know, one of the questions, and it got answered very early, is the vast majority of them were in clinical trials, okay? Mm -hmm. And so the question actually was asked on the forum, why are you in clinical trials and not out in the marketplace? You said it, Peter, and it was said by many others. It's because of what AI has done over the last two or three years to take the testing process by 10,000 times. In other words, you can now do 10,000 different tests in the same amount of time that it used to take to do one test manually. Yeah, there's a whole new set of technologies in the longevity world, you know, single cell sequencing, where you can take a single cell and sequence the genome and then running massively parallel experiments in the test tube and then using machine learning to analyze the data and you know run 10,000 experiments at once and then see which one actually is the best versus historically it would have been sequential. Let's do the first one and the second one and the third one and it's like, oh my God. And what's happened is that speed has increased and time has massively decreased and cost has massively decreased. And it's just, you know, speeding things up. And I talk about the fact that the rate of technological acceleration is itself accelerating. Yeah, The speed of things are going faster is getting faster itself. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, there's a very famous saying, I grew up two miles from where Edison was born in Ohio. And, you know, very famous. You learn Thomas Edison stories. But one thing that he went through 10,000 tests before he got the right filament, and that lasted over about a 16-year period. But now he probably would have set the experiments up this morning and tomorrow he would have the right filament. He would have done the 10,000 tests in one 24-hour period. And that's happening. I mean, you have to compare to the way things were done in the past and the way things are done in the future. I went to a college where you read and discussed the what are considered the 100 greatest books. Mm -hmm. It's called St. John's College. It's in Annapolis, Maryland. It's been around since the 30s. And you start with the Greeks and you end up with Einstein in the 20th century. And the whole question of wisdom, wisdom is guidance that lasts. You know, I mean, we read books where the guidance you know, on the stock market, a stock price will last 
Right now, the average, I think, is under 20 seconds. The average price on Wall Street or on the big stock exchanges used to last for a day. Now it lasts for less than 20 seconds, the prices. (laughs) So the way I brought it, there's input that we find valuable, but they have different time values. And data is perishable. It's instantaneous. Data may be good for five seconds. It may be good for 10 seconds. And then there's information, and information might last for a day or a week. And then you have knowledge, and knowledge today may last for three months. What do you think the half-life, I mean, go back to your medical school when you were there in the, I guess this would be the 80s, you were in medical school. And the knowledge that you would acquire in your medical school, what was the half-life of the knowledge then to the half-life of the knowledge right now? Yeah, I mean, put it a different way. I mean, some of the fundamentals, you know, where the brain and the heart and the lungs are, those remain constant. But the level of detail of knowledge, you know, we used to read in medical school a couple of journal articles per day and we discuss them. I mean, but there are thousands, maybe tens of thousands printed globally, you know, every week. And you don't ever get a chance to really look at them. So what would happen typically in medical school or in your PhD program is you become the world's expert in something very, very, very narrow, right? I wrote about in abundance, I gave the example of going back to my great grandfather and saying to me, you know, what are you an expert in? And I would say, you know, Babu, do you see the dirt there? And he goes, yes, are you the expert in the dirt? No, no. In the dirt, there's this living organism called this bacterium. Oh, are you an expert in that? Well, no. In the bacterium, there's this thing called DNA. Are you an expert in that? No. In the DNA, there's this gene. Well, are you an expert in that? No. There's this enhancer sequence in the gene, and I'm an expert in that. Right. So it was the notion that the only way to keep up with the rate of change is to narrow your focus so much Yeah, I still think we've covered data, information, and knowledge. And then there's a big jump, and there's a thing called wisdom. Okay. Mm -hmm. And wisdom can be 3,000 years old, you know. Sure. Yeah, like, you know, the Ten Commandments, which probably started about 4,000 years ago. And these things were collected. But, you know, there's a couple things is don't steal from your neighbor. Yeah. Pretty wise. Yeah. Don't fool around with your neighbor's wife. Pretty smart. Yeah. Yeah. Honor your parents. Yeah. Don't kill. Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that there's general guidance rules that they're so fundamental to being human that you don't reach a place where, you know, the violation of these rules isn't shocking. Mm. Yep. And the best places on the planet are the ones basically where life's in accordance with these ancient rules. And, you know, for example... If you look at big countries or countries that have had a huge influence on the planet, there's no question in my mind that the greatest positive influence on the planet right now is basically the British Empire. The British Empire, if you take all the countries that were formed by the British Empire, including the United States and Canada and Australia and everything else, it's called the Anglosphere. Mm. And there are people who came from British common law. So the starting point is the English language and English common law. It's about 900 million people on the planet and education-wise, achievement-wise, economic-wise, scientific-wise, 
off the chart. There's nothing to compare with it. But the central fundamental principle at the heart of British Empire is that the freedom of personal property is the source of all freedom. And if you don't guarantee freedom of personal property, there's no other freedom. All English law is based on that one starting point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's wisdom. We've tried it out. We've tried this. We've tried this. Let people own what they create. Let people have ownership over what they create. Yeah. So in that way, we're going to see wisdom from a few other areas that technology are enabling. So besides AI running massive simulations and so forth, the fact that we're connecting 8 billion people on the planet, first and foremost, and the fact that we're creating these easily searchable repositories, you know, Wikipedia, digital books, Google being able to, you know, ask and answer a question. You don't need to make the same mistakes if you take the time to search Mm -hmm. and look and see what's out there or to find people who have the experience relevant to you and seek them out and ask them what have they learned over their time period. Yeah. So that's interesting, right? That wisdom is going to be exponentially, I mean, exponential wisdom, great, great title for a podcast and talking about how wisdom is going to grow exponentially, great, (laughs) great subject for this podcast. Can I tell (laughs) you two areas of wisdom that you're actually pioneering in? Sure. Yeah. The first one is that there's just one disease and it's called aging. Yes. Very true. That's wisdom. Yep. And the other one is that life really, really looks different if you can reverse your age. Like if you can actually on a consistent basis get younger and fitter, it totally changes your notion about what human life is about. I think that's a bit of wisdom. Mm. No, that was worth the comment. I just gave you two big compliments. You should. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. I, I appreciate you. And in the same way that you as my coach and strategic coach as a platform is all about providing wisdom so yeah. that entrepreneurs have new thinking tools. Yeah. Who not how. Like who not how. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 You should really interview this person sometime because he's got so much. Uh, his name is Joe Henrik. He's a scientist and he just wrote a book called The Secret of Our Success. And it takes the beginning of humanity back to about 1.5 billion years, you know, and just says, how did this develop? And he said that Pretty well, everybody buys into Darwin and Darwin's general description of evolution. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about plant life or about nature life. It's about systems. It's about science. It's about knowledge that things evolve, you know, things evolve. He said, nobody can test that anymore. He says, that's a given. But he said, there's a question that evolutionary theory doesn't answer. Why does one species dominate all the other species? Just one species. Not the fastest, not the strongest, not the biggest, don't climb very, very well in short distances, not very good runners, long distance runners, very good, excellent throwers. And he said, basically it is, he said that human beings, they have a currency that they trade with other human beings. It's called shortcuts. Human beings are shortcutters. Is that the same thing as collaboration? Yeah, yeah. He said that individual intelligence is useful, but individual intelligence doesn't determine how things work. He says it's combined intelligence that determines how things work. So sort of our own hive intelligent version that we have. Interesting. 
Yeah. You know, one of the things that people ask is, has our intelligence changed over time? Have we evolved to become more intelligent? And we've definitely evolved from early hominids over the last couple of million years with the frontal cortex and the growth of our neocortex. And we've become more capable. You know, genetically, we haven't changed much over 10,000 years. You could probably take someone out of ancient Greece or ancient Rome and they'd have the same chance of going to Harvard or MIT as someone you know born today if they were educated in the same system. Mm-hmm. But our species-wide wisdom has continued because I think that's cumulative yeah. over time. And that's the collaboration. You know, I think that's the collaborative. Well, the last test of it, you know, around 200,000 years, what Professor Henrik says, a very interesting guy. He did his undergraduate in anthropology, and he did his graduate degree in aerospace engineering. Mm. Very interesting combination of thinking. And he's a tenured professor at four universities right now. Just massive teamwork guy. But he said we had a test, really a human test, that there were other humanoid creatures. You know, the most famous is the Neanderthal and the yeah. The Devosian was another one. And he said it all got settled about 40,000 years ago when the only two left were the humans and the Neanderthals. And they overlapped by about 20,000 years and they commingled. You know, I've done one of those commercial genetics tests, 23andMe, and, you know, I got a little bit of Neanderthal in me. (laughs) Yeah, there's a little bit. And, you know, so they socialized, you know, they intermingled and socialized. And he gave us an interesting thing. He said, but they developed three or four habits. One, their jaws hadn't developed to really make speech easy. So humans, the whole jaw structure had changed. And he said, the other thing is that when they went into battle, women went equally into war with the men for the Neanderthals. He said, this is a big mistake if you're trying to continue your race. You know? <laughs> <laughs> he said, one man and 20 women can create a civilization. One woman and 20 men can't create a civilization. Yeah, you know, the, yeah. the wear out factor is really, really fast. The other thing is humans had already mastered dogs and they use dogs for everything. Yes, yes. You know, the partnership between humans and dogs, they had already done that. But the brain of the Neanderthal was actually bigger than the human brain. But the teamwork capacity of the humans was just vastly bigger than the Neanderthals. Mm. Hmm. Yeah, so it's the teamwork capability. And when we were on your trip, every one of the scientists said, I just got a great team, and my team collaborates with other teams around the world. I remember that. Well, Dan, I think it's about time. We've been doing exponential wisdom for how long now? Multitude of years. Yeah, we start seven, seven years. Yeah, Yeah, it's about time we talk about wisdom on exponential wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, well... The two go together. Exponentials make wisdom and wisdom makes Mm. exponentials. So it'll be interesting because this buildup of collective knowledge that can really, really be tested out. And then you can actually create widespread new capabilities based on the wisdom, I think. And I'll close with this thought. You know, I keep on saying and I truly believe we're all going to have a version of Jarvis from Iron Man and AI that we have an intimate relationship with that knows our thoughts, our feelings and so forth. And imagine if you have that AI 
being able to amass the wisdom of the ages, the experiences of thousands or millions of individuals. And so that it's your on-demand coach, like uh, when you're about to go into a difficult conversation with your husband, your wife, your employee, Mm -hmm. and be able to like say, you know, in 84% of all situations, if you go in with this attitude, you're going to fail. Maybe consider this alternate approach to it. Anyway, I think as we're heading into this exponential world, we're going to see wisdom increasing. And I think that's a great thing for society. Yep. Yeah, I think it's terrific. Thanks, Peter. All right, buddy. Thank you for this fun conversation. See you in the next episode. Thank you.